Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. It's your Friday News Buzz edition of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Later this half hour, we take stock of all the viruses around by talking with the University of Iowa epidemiologist. He's been researching the effectiveness of vaccines, uh, not just COVID, but also flu vaccines. He'll talk about that. Well, this is the end of the first week of the 2023 Iowa legislative session. Uh, Later in the hour, uh, Robin Upsall of Iowa Capital Dispatch tells us about a batch of new requirements for schools on curriculum and student gender identity proposed by majority Republican lawmakers. And these have some LGBTQ advocates very concerned. That coming up in our second half hour. Uh, But first, uh, keeping in tune with the legislative news, let's check in with IPR's education reporter, Grant Gerlach, about uh, the biggest uh, news out of our capital uh, concerning Iowa schools. Grant, welcome to the program. Hi, Ben. Well, it was Tuesday evening in her annual condition of the state address that Governor Reynolds uh, made publicly funded scholarships for private schools the centerpiece of her agenda. Uh, Tell us what she proposed. Well, these are called um, education savings accounts or ESAs. Um, Families that apply for these accounts would receive $7,598 a year in the first year that they could spend toward a number of different things. They could spend it on tutoring uh, or or books or um, online curriculum or something like that. But most are expected to put it toward private school tuition, which is also something that it can be spent on. Um, in the first couple years, there would be some restrictions on who it's available to. It could go to any public school student who's switching to a private school. It could go to any student who's entering kindergarten. Uh, it could also go to private school students under certain income thresholds, um, 300% of poverty level the first year, 400% of poverty level the second year. But what's really notable about this and how it's different from other proposals that the governor has put forward is that by year three, this would be a universal program. It would be open to any K-12 student across the state, regardless of, of income, uh, they would be able to receive this uh, this amount of money from the state, from taxpayer funds, in, in order to pay for private school. And why why that change? Because we know the governor first proposed these types of, um, you know, state funding helps, aids for private schools back in 2021, uh, also again last year, in this latest version. T- tell us more uh, about what you just mentioned, uh, the, the fact that uh, income will, after, what, three years, play no role here. Well, part of this is um, where the governor's philosophy toward this issue has developed. Um, the way she looks at it, the state should support all K-12 students equally. The way they often put it is funding students, not systems. Um, but there are probably some politics involved here, too. She won re-election by a, a pretty healthy margin. She also has a larger uh, majority to work with in the legislature where she was trying to maneuver around uh, potential opposition among House Republicans in the past and may have 
adjusted the proposal to try to to earn enough votes, even though it never went through in those years. So now if she feels like she can get this through, this is what she's going to go for, even uh, even this much larger, more expansive proposal than what she's put forward in the past. Okay, let's talk about reaction among lawmakers to the governor's proposal. Um, the Democrats, in just a moment, we know they have harsh criticism for this, but within her own party, uh, what can we say about reaction uh, early on? Well, I, I think early on, at least among the the leadership in the Senate, I'd say it, it'll probably move fairly quickly on the Senate side. It's passed in the Senate um, without much trouble the past couple years. Um, so I wouldn't expect much trouble for the governor's proposal this time around either. The House uh, remains to be seen to a certain extent. That's where she ran into trouble with her earlier proposals. It's going through a little different process this time. Instead of running through the usual House Education Committee, Speaker Pat Grassley has created a House Education Reform Committee that he's chairing himself. And so he'll have a lot of influence on on how this is shaped as it goes through the process. He has said he intends for this to reach the floor for uh, representatives to have a chance to have an up or down vote on it. Um, so we'll see what it looks like when it gets to that point and whether there are any changes that are made along the way to try to to get this through. What are we hearing from um, Democratic um, Party lawmakers? Uh, we know they lost um, uh, in the last midterm elections. Um, the Republicans increased their uh, majorities in both chambers of the Iowa legislature. Uh, wh- what is their criticism? It, it's been the same uh, uh, throughout the years, uh, throughout the sessions uh, of this proposal, hasn't it? Yeah, they're very critical of the idea of universal uh, ESAs, this being available to any family, regardless of whether they were able to um, pay their way to a private school in the past. Um, the way they put it, this is you know a, a handout to wealthy families who, who can already afford private school. Also, they feel like if the state is able to spend additional money on these education savings accounts, uh, that's money that probably could have gone to public schools in past years if Republicans are willing to spend it on these ESAs. So it's it, they're kind of sounding alarms for how it could impact public schools while also uh, attacking that element that goes to families who are already paying their way. Mm-hmm. You mentioned the two previous uh, failures of the governor to get this through the legislature in 2021 and 22. Um, uh, what... Uh, also, uh, one correction she made uh, last year during the primaries. Uh, tell us what she did. Uh, what campaigned against some in her own parties and and had them replaced, right? Yeah, there were Republicans who were not supportive of her plan in the past, uh, and she supported primary opponents against them. Uh, and and so they have. Um, so there are new people in those seats who she knows are favorable to her her school choice plan. Uh, there are, you know, in the past, she also put elements in her plan to try to appeal to rural lawmakers. There really isn't anything specific in this proposal that is aimed at rural lawmakers and trying to appease them, because in many parts of rural Iowa, there is no private school nearby. Uh, there are many counties in the state that have no private schools, so what's in it for them? Why, why would they support it? 
But there is a, a sort of a different proposal that's part of this that would put some money back to local public schools if students get these ESAs. For every student who has uh, one of these education savings accounts, around $1,200 would go back to the public school that they came from or the public school that they live in, even if they never went to the public school. To put that another way, there will be private school students who receive these uh, this state money who never went to a public school, and the public school will receive around $1,200 even for each of those students um, mm-hmm. on top of their, their usual state funding. Mm-hmm. Before you go, let's uh, have you comment on a suspected ransomware attack this week aimed at the Des Moines Public Schools, causing a lot of disruption. Uh, Before you tell us more about it, here's a bit of the audio from an announcement made on Wednesday of this week by Interim uh, Des Moines Public Schools Superintendent Matt Smith. Um, As of today, we are still in the restoration process and making sure that we have all of our systems getting back online. We are also in the investigation process, and what that means is our diagnostic tools have run through all of our servers, and we now have forensic evidence that has been turned over to our cyber insurance company. They are analyzing the evidence that will give us information about how to move forward. As it relates to school starting tomorrow, we are back in school on Thursday. And again, I just want to thank the families again for your patience, and thank you um, just for, for bearing with us as we get systems back online to receive your child back in school on Thursday. We know that this has been a hardship for each of you, and we're just so grateful and thankful for all of you and for you just staying with us. Interim Superintendent of the Des Moines Public Schools, Matt Smith, with an announcement on Wednesday. Grant, tell us what happened. Well, it was Monday morning. Uh, the IT staff with the district were alerted to a cybersecurity incident that was uh, found by checks built into their server system. And basically, it detected some strange and unwelcome activity on the school's networks. And so they immediately took action and shut down those networks. And what it initially looked like was an Internet outage across the district. But pretty soon, it became clear it was bigger than that. It was some form of cyber attack. And ever since then, they've been working on restoring those networks to full function. Mm -hmm. Um, and these days, uh, there are cyber attacks of all kinds against all kinds of organizations. Uh, school systems seem to be a favorite target here. Um, do we know how this was all restored? Uh, I mean, I know, um, you know, in some cases, organizations uh, pay the ransom, uh, the hackers, uh, to put everything back online the way it was. Right. They actually haven't confirmed whether they know it was a ransomware attack. So... If it was, we also would have no idea what they paid to try to resolve it in that way. We know that federal and state law enforcement are involved mm-hmm. in their investigation. Also, they're working with their cybersecurity insurance company to restore the data that was on those servers and make sure everything goes back in place. It sounds like it was probably a good idea to have that policy on hand. Yeah. Um, so the the servers themselves are actually not fully back up and running, but they're still holding school because... How long can you keep it shut down because of servers? So they're having what they're calling offline learning experiences. There's no internet, no Wi-Fi. Uh, That means some of the online work that students would do or online resources aren't available. And that does interrupt some things. There's a fair amount of data that teachers collect through the day, from grades to information on behavior. It's a little harder to keep track of. But for the most part, school is going on and... Uh, from from what I've heard, it's 
pretty much a normal school day. Right. Okay. Perhaps we'll find out in the future as they investigate uh, this cyber attack on Iowa's largest uh, school district uh, system. Uh, Grant Gerlach, uh, thanks for keeping us up to date on uh, the way things stand on uh, this Friday and the repercussions. Uh, We appreciate it. Grant, have a great weekend. Thanks, Ben. You too. It's your Friday News Buzz edition of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Are you up on your vaccinations? Well, it's not quite the burning question it used to be. Um, Let's find out about some new research, though, on vaccine effectiveness being done at the University of Iowa. And along with that, hopefully some practical advice about where we should all be in terms of vaccinations at the start of 2023. And remembering nearly three years after the start of the COVID uh, pandemic. Recently, the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics announced it's working with UCLA on a second version of a study that goes by the acronym PREVENT. And that stands for Preventing Emerging Infections Through Vaccine Effectiveness Testing. Um, A study co-principal investigator on that study, Dr. Nicholas Moore, joins us now. He's a UI Professor of Emergency Medicine, Anesthesia, and Epidemiology. Dr. Moore, thank you for being with us. Yeah, thanks for having me, Ben. Now, two years ago, as I understand it, the University of Iowa Healthcare uh, co-led a study researching the benefits of new, then new, COVID-19 vaccines. Now, this is a new study called Prevent 2 with uh, nearly $14 million in grant money from the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Um, Tell us what it aims to do, this second PREVENT. PREVENT is a study to measure vaccine effectiveness in healthcare workers. And the reason that we've studied healthcare workers since the beginning of this project is because these were the people in our population who were vaccinated first. There are also people who have exposures through their job and in their communities to infection from COVID. And so um, this study is being conducted in 20 centers across the country to really measure what the effect is of people who have been vaccinated. From those data, we're able to uh, generate new estimates of vaccine effectiveness as new variants come along, as new vaccine products come along. And it's really important to guide our public health policy for us to understand how well these vaccines work. Mm -hmm. Uh, Talk about, um, we've had such a mix of vaccines. We we talk to each other about, you know, commonplace to to talk to people over the last couple of years. What vaccines have you had? And then there's an order of, of the different vaccines. How do you study... I imagine that must be a challenge when we have such a mishmash of different vaccines. That's a good question, Ben. That's one of the important things for us to get out of this work. Most healthcare personnel in the United States have been vaccinated with one of the mRNA vaccines. That's the Pfizer product or the Moderna product. And um, now we have a bivalent booster that is available. It's really important for us to understand in a population that was really widely vaccinated using um, one of those products in the first primary series, how the effect of uh, the new bivalent booster affects people's immunity. 
We also know now, uh, because we've had some more time pass, that a lot of people have been infected with COVID. And so part of the uh, goal of this work is to understand uh, what does the immune profile look like of patients who've been infected with COVID, of patients who've been vaccinated with their primary series, how long does uh, the immunity from vaccination last, how does it, uh, uh, for people who have had the bivalent booster and have been infected or who have not been infected, what does uh, immunity look like in those people? Because those questions are really questions that we use um, uh, to make recommendations and our public health uh, leaders use to make recommendations about vaccine schedules uh, and about uh, uh, which products people should be using to be vaccinated. Mm-hmm. As an investigator in this study and the previous study, uh, what do you anticipate or what are you finding to be the biggest challenges? I, I suppose that mix of vaccines is one. Uh, other challenges you anticipate? I think that when we all started this work now, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, none of us knew what the next three years were going to hold. And so as we design studies like this that are testing really real-world effectiveness, what we expect is that we're going to see things that look different than what we saw in the initial clinical trials. But none of us know what the future will hold. We don't actually know what the next variant will be or uh, whether additional vaccine products uh, would be required in the future. And so designing this study, we really have been trying to uh, uh, be flexible because we know that the questions that we'll have six months from now are different from the questions that we have right now. And having a platform in 20 medical centers across the United States to be able to answer those questions really quickly to provide the answers that we need to our public health authorities, I think is important. Yeah. We don't know what the future will be. You don't know your challenges. You have to be open to to, to, to changes in this uh, vaccine and the virus landscape. What would you say are have been the most significant changes from your point of view uh, in the past couple of years that affect vaccine effectiveness? Well, I think that the thing that we probably all have seen most recently is the availability of the bivalent booster. Right now, we know that that booster has been rolled out across the country and is available to uh, uh, to the population. We also know that the booster now is effective, and we've been involved with some work that has, has uh, shown that people who have been vaccinated with that bivalent booster are less likely to be infected and certainly much less likely to be infected with severe disease. I think that some of these time uh, uh, effects of vaccination is something we're trying to understand more about. How long do people have immunity from vaccination and how does natural infection play into that? So um, those are some of the things that we have been working to understand. I was looking at the New York Times data on um, coronavirus um, hospitalizations and, and deaths. Um, we have, uh, as of this week, and it, it's vanished from our headlines, and um, not too many mentions of it in the news, as a matter of fact. The average daily death rate, we still have to remind ourselves, is, is over 500 uh, across the country. Around 47,000 people currently hospitalized with coronavirus. That's the highest number since last March, according to the New York Times data. It's far below all-times high. How concerning to you is this growth in hospitalizations? Coronavirus has been with us for now the last two years and will continue to be with us in the future. So I think that as we see that uh, hospitalizations are increasing, it just reinforces for me the importance of vaccination. It reinforces um, the role that future variants are going to have 
we know that as there are new variants that uh, come into our state that um, we would expect new variants to be uh, uh, more infectious, that people will get infected with some of those. And so to the extent that we can protect ourselves and, and our neighbors and our friends through vaccination, I think that that's a really important message as we see that increase in hospitalizations in our state and around the country. Yeah, I'll have you. I'll ask you at the, in in a moment to, to to leave us with some practical advice about um, our, our vaccinations. But first, how would you describe the current landscape of the most prevalent viruses in the U.S.? This winter has reinforced, I think, for a lot of us, that respiratory virus season is something that we have uh, faced every year. Influenza, RSV, now. COVID-19. These are all respiratory viruses that are likely to be uh, more prevalent in the winter months, especially in the northern United States when people are spending more time inside. Uh, And as new variants come um, uh, through the population in the United States, we're going to see these peaks and valleys with COVID-19 infections, just like we've seen with influenza really for many years. Yeah. And you are working on other research, new research into flu vaccines, Uh, You are a site investigator at the University of Iowa. Tell us briefly about uh, what that involves. Yeah, another study that we're participating in is called IVY. And IVY is another multi-center national study funded by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention where we're trying to understand among people who are hospitalized with respiratory viruses what effect vaccination has played in uh, preventing uh, infection or in preventing severe disease. And so uh, that project, again, uh, uh, studying hospitalized patients, we are also able to make estimates of how effective vaccination has been. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, Dr. Moore, leave us, please, with some practical advice about what people should be paying attention to in order to have maximum protection against all the bugs you've (laughs) described a bit about. Yeah, in the last three years, we have really focused on COVID-19, but uh, we know that respiratory virus season is something that has affected Iowans for many years. We know that influenza vaccination is important, and COVID-19 vaccination is especially important. So I would encourage your your listeners, if they haven't been vaccinated, to call their doctor or go and be vaccinated in their communities um, and to continue to watch the guidance as it comes out in the news and from CDC for future vaccine products. Right, and and wearing a mask in public areas, uh, uh, not a bad idea either. Not a bad idea, especially for people who have underlying diseases that might put them at increased risk if they were to be infected. Uh, But really, you know, I think that vaccination is just really key uh, in controlling uh, case counts from these conditions right now. Thank you very much for your time, Dr. Nicholas Moore, University of Iowa Professor of Emergency Medicine, Anesthesia, and Epidemiology. Dr. Moore. Take care. Thank you. Thanks, Ben. Coming up after a short break, Robin Upsall of Iowa Capital Dispatch tells us about a batch of new requirements for schools on curriculum and student gender identity proposed this week by majority Republican lawmakers. Also, Lynn Taw of Axios Des Moines on how Iowa's new bottle bill rules are changing the state's redemption industry and maybe changing how you return your bottles and cans. I'm Ben Kiefer. It's a news buzz edition of River to River from IPR News. Stay tuned.
Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. This IPR podcast is supported by Cultivating Compassion, the Dr. Richard Deming Foundation, fostering causes that enrich the community, generate understanding, and cultivate compassion including Above and Beyond Cancer. It's your Friday News Buzz edition of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Uh, Finishing up this first week of the 2023 Iowa legislative session and continuing with the theme of education, uh, let's touch bases with Robin Upsall. Uh, Robin is the Iowa Capital Dispatch reporter who covers the state legislature and politics. Welcome back to our program, Robin. Thank you. It's great to talk with you, Ben. Now, as you reported uh, in an article, uh, Iowa House Republicans released uh, this week their first slate of legislation for the year, including a batch of proposed new requirements for schools on curriculum and student gender identity. Um, Give us some background here first, because we covered a lot of news last year that had to do with, in eastern Iowa, the Lindmar Community School District and the controversy there, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. So uh, this legislation is a response to those sort of school policies like the one at Linmar. Uh, Linmar has a policy where uh, when students uh, who are transgender or non-binary um, can meet with their uh, school administration and teachers to go over what they call a gender support plan. Uh, within 10 days of the student coming to them for uh, talking about things like changing pronouns or their names, which are used uh, in classroom and in uh, school discussions. So the student in those cases gets to decide who is involved in those meetings and can choose to not have their uh, parents or guardians attend them. Uh, If if they aren't comfortable with them being a part of those meetings in case of uh, how some LGBT activists say uh, is a matter of safety or homelessness might be a concern depending on their parents' feelings on LGBT issues. And with that backdrop, Robin, um, tell us about the concerns voiced by Republican lawmakers and uh, the answers they say they have in the form of legislation. Yep. So the legislation they're proposing is uh, prohibiting school districts from making uh, changes to how they address and refer to a student's uh, gender identity if it is different from their legal name and gender identity without written consent from parents. Uh, Legislators that I talked to said that this is a concern in terms of parents being informed about what's happening in their child's life and that these sort of decisions should not be made without both awareness and consent from parents. Mm -hmm. Okay. And in answer to that, uh, what do LGBTQ advocates say? I understand from your coverage that uh, they'll say this puts transgender youth at risk. How? Yeah. So um, a lot of the LGBTQ activists I talk to said that um, not all parents are supportive of their children who come out with some 
you know, gay or transgender identities. Uh, in some cases, this could lead to a child be kick, being kicked out of their home. It could lead to higher rates of suicide or higher rates of mental illness, mental health problems, uh, and in some cases create a dangerous home environment uh, for children who um, might identify uh, with a different gender or sexuality, uh, but whose parents are not supportive. Mm -hmm. Who did you talk to specifically in in this coverage of of these bills? Yep. So I talked to uh, Damian Thompson with Iowa Safe Schools, uh, as well as activists with One Iowa. Mm -hmm. On all on all matters here on Iowa Public Radio, we like to be science based. What can you tell us about the science concerning what you just mentioned a moment ago? Uh, mental health in the um, concerning LGBTQ mental health uh, and how that may guide us to the best policies. Yes. So Iowa Safe Schools brought up statistics that uh, gender affirming pronoun practices and name practices. So that's to say uh, a teacher using a transgender child's preferred name and pronouns that that can lead to up to a 50 percent reduction in some of these mental health concerns. Uh, I don't have statistics with me at the moment for um, what sort of Republicans are arguing is that um, many trans students or children who um, believe they're trans end up detransitioning or deciding that they identify, identify a different way or with their gender that they were assigned at birth later down the line. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, have we covered all the areas, uh, the proposed bills by the Republican-controlled uh, legislature at this point, or are there other facets we need to touch on in this area? Yeah, so in terms of uh, LGBTQ policies, they also proposed legislation that would limit how gender and sexuality are brought up, specifically with uh, K kindergarten through third grade students. Um, it has a uh, requirement of um, that these topics are not able to be brought up with students at that age, um, which some activists say with One Iowa said uh, is concerning because a lot of the material that are provided to those, that age range of students is, is just, um, say, learning about uh, families that might not be just a mother and a father, right? Uh, people who have uh, same-gender parents, people who have only one parent or other non-traditional family structures, as well as anti-bullying uh, anti -bullying, uh, content, which appears in classrooms, which uh, LGBT activists are concerned uh, may be affected by this legislation or that it would not be allowed to be shown to students. Mm -hmm. Iowa Republicans increased their majorities in both chambers of the legislature due to the midterm elections last year. Uh, you cover the legislature. We'll continue to do that throughout this session. What can you tell us at this point in this very first week of the session about the, the likely future of these bills or perhaps what you're watching uh, as uh, we see uh, they uh, are vetted and uh, debated, I assume, in this 
Republican-controlled legislature. Mm-hmm. I think we're seeing right out of the gate that education is obviously going to be the biggest focus starting out here, uh, both with the governor's private school scholarship program and the slate of legislation introduced by House Republicans. I think that parental choice uh, and advocates for school choice have been a large focus of the Republican strategy for education going forward. And I think we're going to see a lot of discussions on that moving forward through the session, especially in regards to um, both choice of where to send a child to school, such as the private school options like the governor has Mm -hmm. proposed, as well as what is being taught in public schools, which is more along the lines of some of the legislation introduced uh, in in this article I talked about. Okay, Robin, uh, we'll look forward to future reporting from you. Robin Upsall is Iowa Capitol dispatch reporter uh, covering state legislature and uh, political matters. Robin, thanks again. Until next time. Thank you. It's your Friday News Buzz edition of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Iowa's new bottle bill rules have been in effect, well, now almost two weeks. Um, Went into effect January 1st. Maybe you've noticed some changes because of the new rules. Um, For instance, has your local grocery store stopped taking your cans and bottles with deposits? Uh, Let's find out uh, about how this new law is changing our state's can redemption industry. Lynn Ta has been reporting on this for Axios Des Moines. Hi, Lynn. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks for being on again. Now, this bottle bill we know has been a perennial issue for many years among lawmakers. Finally, last year, they cleared the hurdles. Um, uh, The aged law first put in place back in the 1970s, heck, when I was a kid, (laughs) was overhauled. What are the basics of the new law? Yeah, so basically the new law allows Um, grocers and and different stores that sell bottles and cans like gas stations. Um, It gives them more options to be able to opt out of taking back um, the recycling. So, you know, if if a grocery store or a convenience store is within 10 or 15 miles of a can redemption center, um, they may opt out. They may opt out if they partner with one. Um, and they just have more options to to be able to refuse now to take those back. Mm-hmm. Now, the incentives have changed. Uh, how so? I mean, we still have a five-cent deposit on our uh, bottles and cans that have uh, carbonated beverages, right? Yeah. So the consumer is still charged the nickel um, at the cash register. But what's changed now is that redemption centers um, kind of as an incentive to take the the cans and bottles back. Um, their handling fees have increased from one to three cents, and that's paid to them by the the different beverage distributors. So the idea is that, you know, even though maybe fewer grocery stores or convenience stores um, may take the cans or bottles back, with the increased fee, you know, hopefully maybe there's more redemption centers that decide to pop up and kind of take advantage of it. Yeah, and have... Uh, new redemption centers have been popping up, as I think uh, the the designers of this bill expected or hoped? Yeah, so far, you know, it may be a little too early to tell. Um, 
but at the moment, you know, last year the DNR had told me back in 2021, there were over 100 redemption centers that had been approved. Um, but that may have been a little bit of an outdated list. But now this year, so far, there's about 15 days left for centers to, to a- apply for approval through the DNR. Um, and from what I learned last week, there was only about 56 centers, give or take. So, um, you know, at the moment, I don't know if they're really chomping at the bit to, to try to do this. I think I think there's a lot of wait and see just to see kind of how everything plays out. Um, but I think at the end of the month, once we see how many redemption centers are approved, it will be interesting to see then how many grocery stores and convenience stores decide to either keep their program or opt out. Mm-hmm. Share with us some of the, the criticism of this uh, latest version of a bottle bill rules. Um, I think especially how it may impact more rural folks, right? Yeah. Well, so the idea when the original one came out was to be able to try and, you know, help the environment, right? That, you know, if there's an incentive that if you are paying this nickel fee and you're getting in this five cents back, um, you know, hopefully you're not throwing away your trash or littering or anything like that. Um, but one of the things that grocery stores and, and other stores that have taken the recycling have um, kind of consistently said has been the issue is that, uh, you know, it's a really dirty um, thing to handle. You know, you're dealing with sometimes half-filled beverages, different things like that, and that it costs them money. Um, and especially when 2020, you know, popped up and the governor had her temporary rules um, pausing it, I think that kind of gave the stores um, really a chance to, to be able to re-examine it and say to the state and say to lawmakers, hey, um, you know, we really need to be taking a look at this again. So so now, you know, critics, uh, especially environmental activists, have been saying, you know, now with this new rule, you know, there's fewer places available for people to be able to go, you know, and, and return these bottles and cans. So it's pretty easy to be able to just go down to your grocery store, but you know, if you have to go to a redemption center that's 10 miles away, mm-hmm. um, you may feel less incentive to be able to, to go and do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, true. Now, uh, River to River listeners will be following uh, this issue, uh, and uh, I'd like to reach out right now and uh, have you know that uh, you can let us know how the new bottle bill rules are affecting you. Drop us an email about this or any other issue here on River to River, our email, river to river at iowapublicradio.org. Lynn Ta, reporter with Axios at Des Moines. Have a wonderful holiday weekend with uh, MLK events in Des Moines and across the state. Thanks, Ben. This IPR podcast is supported by Cultivating Compassion. The Dr. Richard Deming Foundation, fostering causes that enrich the community, generate understanding, and cultivate compassion, including above and beyond cancer.